Hi, everybody. Welcome, welcome. I'm going to add my welcome to Deanne. Um, welcome to Recovery Jam. Um, and uh, tonight we're going to talk about there's a solution, which, um, you know, is a great is a great chapter because it's a chapter that lets us know that, yeah, there's hope for us that we actually have an answer, that there is an answer in the text here that there's a solution to our problem. Um, and so, you know, before I kind of jump in and talk about the solution, um, I always want to start off with just a quick, um, well, solution to what? Like you need to know that someone has a problem, right? And so, um, you know, my, my own personal experience, why I'm here and I can talk about the solution is because I've had a problem. <laughs> And my problem has been a compulsive overeater, um, and which which for me means that um, I cannot control the food, specific types of food, and a certain type of eating. Once I start, I've got an allergy of the body, and then worse, you know, a worse problem than that is. I also, knowing that, knowing that certain types of eating are bad for me and knowing that certain types of foods do this thing in me, which, which creates an allergic response called a craving, which means I can't stop once I start. That's a bad problem, right? But worse than that problem is I have a mind that when I put the substance down entirely, after a period of time, my mind will tell me I don't have a problem at all anyway, and I might as well pick it up again. So I have, I've got this, this mandate. I, I read somewhere that it's a biological mandate, which means that I'm going to continue to eat once I start eating. And yet I have a mind that convinces me that I can start again. And that's a problem. That's a really big problem. And no treatment outside of a relationship with God, which is what we're going to find out the solution, um, has been able to solve that dilemma for me. And for me specifically, it had to come, this relationship had to come via a specific method, which was a 12-step method. You know, so for me, it meant that I couldn't just go to a religious you know, affiliation. I couldn't just necessarily go to synagogue or, or church or and get a solution to this. I somehow needed something very different and specific that would lead me to have a relationship with God. And so basically I just told you what the whole solution was, <laughs> right? Before I even read, before I even read the chapter. But um, you know, we know that for me, I know that I need repetition. I need it. You know, I might need the opening intro to tell me what it is, but I need to like really uncover it some more. So that's, this is what the chapter is going to do for us. So if we open it up to page 17, it tells us here that we are people who normally would not mix, but there exists among us a fellowship, a friendliness and an understanding, which is indescribably wonderful. We are like the passengers of a great liner the moment after rescue from shipwreck when camaraderie, joyousness, and democracy pervade the vessel from steerage to captain's table. 
Unlike the feelings of the ship's passengers, however, our joy in escape from disaster does not subside as we go our individual ways. The feeling of having shared in a common peril is one element, it's just one element in the powerful cement which binds us. But that in itself would never have held us together as we're now joined. So yes, we might feel a sense of fellowship and a camaraderie and a connection because we have a shared problem. But just knowing that we have a shared problem is not enough to hold us together, nor is just having had that problem solved enough to hold us together. We actually require another piece that binds us together. And here's what it is. The tremendous fact for every one of us is that we, yes, we've discovered a common solution. We have a way out on which we can absolutely agree and upon which we can join in brotherly and harmonious action. So the fact that we have a, a shared problem is one element. The fact that we have a shared solution is another element. But I think the real binding element is that we work harmoniously together in action to do something very specific, which is to help with the rescuing of still others, right? We've been rescued from this ship, right? From this sinking ship. And now the harmonious action that we participate in is assisting others in their rescuing as well, right? And so that's the great news that this book carries to those who suffer from alcoholism. That paragraph, you know, that I just read, it talks about friendships that come from being rescued together. But those relationships don't endure once the rescuing is done, right? Just getting rescued together. You know, people celebrate celebration over. But ours continues indefinitely because in order for me to remain rescued, I have to help with the rescuing of still others. And we come to find that out later on you know, um, in working with others, that my ability to remain rescued is reliant entirely on, am I assisting others in getting to safety as well, right? Um, my recovery depends, you know, on the growth of my spiritual condition. And in our program, what that means for us is that the spiritual condition is sustainable only through cooperative, harmonious action. That my spiritual solution, my, my spiritual life, the well-being and health of my spirit is, am I being useful to others? Am I helping others? That's how we remain spiritually fit in this program. We're bound together through self-sacrifice and working with others. That's what holds us together. And those who've been rescued consistently get back in the water and rescue others, right? In fact, you can't remain rescued unless you do that very thing. Um, page 18 says an illness of this sort, and we've come to believe this is an illness, involves those about us in a way no other human sickness can. If a person has cancer, all is sorry for him and no one is angry or hurt. 
but not so with the alcoholic illness, right? So our disease of compulsive eating rarely is even viewed as a disease or actually even an addiction. Like other, you know, other types of addictions at least get the recognition of being an addiction, not really for compulsive overeaters. There's a lot of, you know, there's a lot of people that think this isn't a problem, you know? And um, so we get very little understanding. And very often we don't even give it to ourselves. You know, the frustrating thing is that with this disease, the sick person often doesn't know that they're sick, right? Doesn't believe that they actually suffer from an illness. And here's the thing though, even once they discover that they have this illness, um, the sick person has no enthusiasm for the treatment. They're not very excited about the course of action. Um, you know, and and for, first of all, it usually starts with abstinence. Most people don't even want to be abstinent. They don't, and that was just the basic beginning thread, right? Um, you know, we're lectured. That's what happens to us. We get lectured, we get ridiculed. You know, even fat shamed. You know, a lot of a lot of people have had that experience of people, you know, making you feel really bad about the physical consequences of, of this disease. And, you know, uh, although I suffered miserably from it, I mean, my, you know, my top weight, I was over, I always say this, I was over 300 pounds and, um, and I was miserable. And even at periods when I was entirely abstinent and had lost weight, I was still miserable, right? I walked around in a state of perpetual misery um, and I was miserable and I think my family suffered from my misery as well. And even then I did not take this problem seriously. Like I didn't think it was that big a problem. And, you know, hearing that it's a disease was a really important part of the process. Like I remember hearing this is an illness, this is a disease. And at first I felt a great relief at knowing that I have this disease. You know, like, thank God it's not my fault, right? I'm, I'm not to blame, but that's not enough of the solution either. Just finding out that you have an illness isn't enough of a solution. You know, for me, doctors would repeatedly attempt to scare me and family members would sit me down and give me a good talking to, and they would tell me that they were worried and nothing worked, nothing, except something obviously did, right? Otherwise I wouldn't be here. Um, so what did persuade me, right? What worked if the doctors didn't work and my family sitting me down worked, nor did my own, I would give myself a good talking to. Some Monday mornings, I would try to squeeze into some clothes and I'd be like, that is it, that's it. You're going to start right now. You can do it. Come on. You know, you've done, I would give myself, never worked. That didn't work either. So what did persuade me? What actually got me to take this seriously? Other compulsive eaters, other people who suffered from this, you know? And so here we're told on page 18, but the ex problem draper who has found this solution, who's properly armed with facts about himself, can generally win the entire confidence of another alcoholic in a few hours. Until such an understanding is reached, little or nothing can be accomplished. So 
who gave me the solution, who helped me take this seriously? Other problem drinkers, other problem eaters. In fact, not just problem eaters, ex-problem eaters. I needed people who had found the way out, you know? And so we're really being given directions here on how we're gonna carry the message. Because remember, that's part of the solution. When it says there's a solution, you know, um, sometimes when people are new to program, they think they've got years and years until they're gonna have to worry about helping anybody else. And I'm here to tell you that's not true. Like that's actually has to start happening pretty quick. So we're given directions on how we're gonna carry the message how to win the confidence of others. That's our job. We're gonna win their confidence. First of all, you have to be an ex-problem drinker, right? You have to be an ex-problem eater, which is why, you know, you can't be a sponsor. You can't be out there sponsoring um, if you're not, if you're not in a healthy state, if you're not in a recovered state. Um, You've got to be an ex-problem eater. You can't be currently eating problematically and carrying the message because you have you don't have a message to carry at that point. You know, when we carry the message, we don't use frothy emotional appeal. Instead, we are armed with facts. So we meet people with facts and not facts about the dangers of sugar. <laughs> That's not the facts. We're not coming at people with the dangers of high blood pressure or being obese or being an anorexic or a bleep. Nope, that, those are not the facts we come armed with. The facts that we come armed with are facts about ourselves. And so we talk about ourselves. That's how we carry the message. We talk about ourselves and our experiences. And what I find really what seems to draw fellows the most people who are looking to get help the most is when I share my story of my own suffering. When I, when I share a particular aspect of the way that I suffered with this disease, because what that does is it piques their interest. It gets people interested. Um, and the next paragraph also tells me precisely how I'm going to approach someone. So I'm going to talk about my own experiences and here's how I'm gonna make the approach. That the man who's making the approach has had the same difficulty. That he obviously knows what he's talking about. That his whole deportment shouts at the new prospect that he is a man with a real answer. So it's not that I'm gonna be shouting at anybody, but my deportment, my demeanor, the way that I carry myself, the way that I present myself should start giving an indication that I have that I have the real answer, that I know what the real answer is. And then I've got, it says here, no attitude of holier than thou, nothing whatever except the sincere desire to be helpful. So when you're sharing, when when you're sharing your story, it should never be that you're somehow you've reached this level of perfection. In fact, I was talking to someone today and I was telling them that probably one of the best ways to tell is to share about a particular chapter about your story is you read the paragraph, you talk about it, you talk about what the directions mean in it, 
you talk about what it looks like when you're practicing them appropriately, and you talk about where you failed and how you have redirected and righted yourself. And, and that's because um, I'm not, none of us are holier than now. When we say we're recovered, not cured, you know, we're not cured from being human. So I, you know, we tell our, we tell our truth with the sincere desire to be helpful. That's always what all of our words should be about, just to be helpful, no fees to pay, no axes to grind, no people to please, no lectures to be endured. These are the conditions we find most effective. So you should never be charged money. A sponsor should not ask you to pay them, right? There is, you can jump in on this Zoom meeting. We don't, we don't even have a seventh tradition on this one. You know, seventh tradition, by the way, is to support the, the fellowship and the meeting, but it's not a prerequisite for listening to the message, right? So what is helpful then, right? The, what is helpful? The right information delivered from a calm and humble messenger. People are not convinced when the person carrying the message has a superior attitude or has an ax to grind, meaning a complaint that they must discuss, right? So I should not be coming at you ever, none of us should, with a position of, let me tell you where this thing went wrong, right? And especially, I think we have to be very careful in Overeaters Anonymous because there's many different iterations of the rooms of recovery. There are different types of meetings, right? And I should never trash talk any particular, you know, branch of a 12-step program ever. Or really, it should never be my place to badmouth any particular solution that anybody has ever found. That that should never be part of the message that I'm delivering should not be a message of finding fault with, you know, I, and I sometimes hear it, like we would say, oh, in the regular rooms of OA, what, I don't know what that even means, the regular rooms. Like somehow those were inferior rooms. And now that you're in this place, this is a superior room. Um, and that should not be the way that we carry the message. Um, you know, page 19 through 20, it says of necessity, there's going to have to be discussion of medical, psychiatric, social, and religious. We're aware that these matters are from their very nature controversial. Nothing would please us as much to write a book which would contain no basis for contention or argument. We shall do our utmost to achieve that ideal. Most of us sense that real tolerance of other people's shortcomings and viewpoints and respect for their opinions or attitudes which make us more useful to others. Our very lives as ex-problem drinkers depend upon our constant thought of others and how we may help meet their needs. So in recovery, there's gonna be conversations that involve topics that might seem to incite disagreements, debates and disputes, but our solution means that we're going to proceed carefully that we're not going to set out to instigate problems. We're not looking here to create drama and problems. Why not? 
Why, why can't we do that? What if I really know the answer? And I want to point out to you that they really don't, right? Why isn't that helpful? Well, it's not useful. It's not useful information and it's not helpful. Our solution is to be useful, to be helpful, to meet people's needs. We have to be tolerant of shortcomings and viewpoints. And when I, you know, describe tolerant, it means that I'm desensitized and perhaps a little thicker skinned to the differences and the ways of other people. And that I should not be so sensitive to people, not that I have to stomach them, but that I somehow have a higher level of tolerance, a higher threshold for reactivity for things that might be something I would disagree with or something I would have a problem with. You know, I would say like, we're a little more chill. We don't freak out over things that we would have in the past. Um, and then actually it says here that our lives depend on it. And I used to think, you know, that my life depended on my food plan, right? That's just the very basic. Really, my life depends on my ability to be tolerant and loving and useful to others. You know, now on page 20 through 21, it's going to start looking at the different types of drinkers, different types of eaters. And I, you know, and I think the, the reason that the book goes into that here is, um, Although the chapter is called There's a Solution, we have to determine if you're the type who's going to need this solution. So the dip, the different types, it kind of helps break it down, whether or not you're going to be the type that's going to require this specific type of treatment. And it says, moderate drinkers have little trouble in giving up liquor entirely if they have good reason for it, right? They can take it or leave it alone. Okay, I would say those are people who don't have a problem right? They might overeat on Thanksgiving, but the Friday after Thanksgiving, they're not picking, you know, in the middle of the night at the cold stuffing in the refrigerator. They're not there. Um, hard drinkers, now it says, they may have the habit, badly enough, to gradually impair him physically and mentally, um, and it may cause them to die a few years ahead of their time. But if there's a sufficient, strong reason, like ill health, falling in love, change of environment, or the warning of a doctor, this person can stop or even moderate. Although he might find it difficult and troublesome and might even require medical treatment. So I would say these are the types of people who have success at those um, regular pain way programs. They might need help. It might be really hard for them, um, but they can do it. And also, you know, these are the people who are successful at bariatric surgery, right? Because they can have medical intervention and a sufficient reason, like they'll get physically sick if they eat past, you know, that full point and they can stop. They can moderate or stop entirely. Um, and you might even find those people in the rooms of Overeaters Anonymous. And guess what? They're welcomed here because the only requirement for membership in OA is a desire to stop eating compulsively. That's it. Now, um, they can get along really well with, the, with support and a good food plan. 
and they might not require the 12 step method. Those are the people who can pick and choose what aspects of the program they do. And I was hoping, I really wanted to be in that class desperately. I wanted to do what I call the OA light program. You know, the take what you want and leave the rest. And for me, that was take what's easy and leave what's hard, right? Um, but that didn't work for me. So now it says here, what about the real alcoholic? What about the real compulsive overeater? That person might start off as a moderate. He might even become a continuous hard drinker, but at some stage, he begins to lose all control once he starts to eat, once he starts to drink. So we're getting a clearer understanding of what a real compulsive overeater is. And again, why do we need to know this? You know, because I thought this chapter was there's a solution. And it sounds like you're telling me there's the problem. There's the problem. There's the problem. Well, you know, unless I am convinced that I am the real compulsive eater, I likely won't feel the need for this solution. You know, which is why step one is often the hardest step for most people. Because step one is more than just, I'm fat and my jeans don't fit, right? Or um, I wish I could lose some weight or, you know, I wish I could gain some weight, right? It's not that. This is people who, you know, for those that require the real solution are people who once they start, they cannot stop and they can't stay stopped, right? So, Page 22 says, why does he behave like this? Why, why would I behave this way? If hundreds of experiences have shown him that one drink means another debacle with all its intended suffering and humiliation, why is it that he takes that one drink? Why? Why can't you stay on the water wagon? For me, why couldn't I stay on that diet? Why couldn't I stay abstinent? Where's my common sense? It's going to talk about common sense and willpower that he sometimes displays with respect to other matters. You know, and here it says, perhaps there will never be a full answer to these questions. Opinions vary considerably as to why the alcoholic reacts differently from normal people. We're not sure why once a certain point is reached, little can be done for him. We cannot answer the riddle. So, you know, the, um, the solution does not involve discovering why we became compulsive eaters. And I've known like, I think early on in recovery, a lot of us, myself included, I'm gonna speak for myself, came into the rooms hoping that I was gonna find the reason why, that I was gonna find an answer to that riddle. And I wasted a lot of time and a lot of energy on trying to uncover the why. And what I say is this, you know, why is an immature question? And, and why do I say it's an immature question? Because um, it doesn't really mean I want to understand why. What it really means is I don't like it and I don't want it to be true. And I want to assign someone else blame. You know, um, I want it different than it is. And I think like, you know, when my kids were little and I would say to them, you know, you got to go to bed. And they would start with the why question. 
they didn't really want me to go into a lengthy explanation about how all children need, you know, eight to nine hours of solid rest in order for their brains to work properly. And no, they just wanted me to let them stay up late, right? And I think that's what it was like for me when I asked why. I just wanted someone to pin it on, someone that I could blame so I could go right on doing what I want and not assume responsibility for it. And here's what I found out. Therapy is awesome. I, I have nothing against good doctors and good therapists. It's not part of this solution. It's not. Therapy can treat other aspects of other problems. And I've been fortunate enough to have benefited from good therapists for other problems. But this particular problem doesn't work with therapy because identifying the why unless I can get in a time machine and undo anything that anyone ever did to me, what am I gonna do about it is a better question, right? What am I gonna do about it? So, you know, and it says on page 23, um, these observations would be academic and pointless if our friend never took the first drink, thereby setting the terrible cycle in motion. Therefore, for now we're gonna find out what the real problem is. The main problem of the alcoholic centers in his mind rather than in his body you know and so it says here like if you ask people you know after they binged or after they've had that you know last bender why why did you do that we'll give you a hundred alibis and usually you hear people say well you know i picked up the food because and they give you a reason something that went poorly in their life and sometimes those reasons are really big, like the death of a family member. That's a big, that's a big one. Or, you know, something with their own health or the loss of a job or the loss of a relationship, right? Some big things that happen and people would say, that's why I picked up. But, you know, explanations and reasons and excuses, defenses, those are actually the lies my mind creates to get my mind to eat. Doesn't mean those things aren't true, but the lie is that somehow I'll feel better or it will be better if I eat, that I won't have to deal with the problem if I eat. And, you know, and sometimes those excuses sound really logical. They have a plausible, you know, they're plausible but they don't make sense in light of the havoc that drinking or compulsive eating creates in my life. You know, and so they say it's like, you know, beating yourself on the head with a hammer to quiet your headache. That makes no sense, you know? Um, and what it is for me is, you know, in a weird way, the, there's lies, there's stories that my mind creates and it tells me to get me to give in to eat. And those lies, they're really believable. They make sense. They sound, I mean, we, we've heard it said that I lie to myself in my own voice. The voice of my disease sounds just like me, you know, and the lie that my mind has to believe. Well, of course it's going to believe it because this mind made it up. So it knows exactly what 
the proper lie will fit, the proper explanation will fit each occasion. It's like, I'm the one that creates exactly what I need to believe so that I'll eat again. And, you know, it, and, and really what it is for me is that my mind minimizes the danger of the food. In that moment, it minimizes just how dangerous it is, or it tells me something else, which is like the worst thing of all. It tells me I don't care. It just says, you know, when every other lie fails, when it's like, oh, it's just one bite. Yeah, my mind's like, mm, no, it's not. You're going to be binging. You know it. Like there were, I would reach a point where I knew I was going to binge. It wasn't even like, you know, that I, Janet explains about the, um, the broken bridge. Sometimes people's broken bridge is that they actually don't remember. They have no ability to connect the memory that one bite will lead to the binge. But my bridge is broken a little bit differently. My mind forgets that it remembers that it cares, that I care about myself. So when I'm about to eat and I'm at a point, it's like, yeah, I don't care. Yeah, I'm going to binge and I don't even care, right? Um, you know, and so for me, you know, if I had a cold, right, here's what it was like. I instantly wanted certain foods. I had a cold. And just this last weekend, I have a cold. I have a little bit of a congestion. And for me, what would come in my mind right away, and it, thank God it doesn't anymore. I would think, oh, I need a sucking candy. I need something. Or I need an ice pop. You know, or if I have a stomach ache, I need, I need saltines. I need something. And, you know, um, and what it was, was that I wanted to use food medicinally to treat those problems. But a cold or even a stomach virus is nowhere near as serious as morbid obesity. Nowhere near as serious as my food addiction. None of these other problems are, are anywhere near. But in that moment, the discomfort that I feel from a scratchy throat, the discomfort I feel from an upset stomach, you know, is, is so intense that I believe that the curing of that physical discomfort is the most important thing. I had no ability to just to like tolerate any of that discomfort. And I really wanted so much to eat to ease the pain. And I would say, you know, even beyond that, you know, um, the pain of living in this disease, for me, you know, overweight, pain of being in a 300 pound body was so painful that nothing so much as soothed that pain as a pint of Ben and Jerry's. Makes no sense. The pain of living fat was was seemingly made me want to eat more, right? So I could just, and that applied to any problem I had. Any problem I had, which might have been a result of living with an addiction, I instantly wanted to treat with the substance that was causing the problem, right? Makes no sense. Um, you know, in page 23, the third paragraph says, Everybody hopefully awaits the day when the sufferer will rouse himself and assert his power of will. You know, and so it wasn't just my family that wanted me to pull myself together. 
right? To get motivated and get moving and do something. I too was waiting for that day. I kept thinking, you know, that magical Monday, right? Or that Sunday when I'm thin off. I think that was my motto. I could have had it on a shirt. Someday when I'm thin off. Someday when I'm thin off. There was like a whole list of things that I was going to do when I was thin. And, and I'd say like I was living my life only partly alive, waiting for the day, you know, watching life from inside a window. And if that's where you're at right now, um, you know, you can actually start today. Start living today in the best possible way in the body that you're in. You know, accept the physical form that you're in this exact moment in time. Just, you know, one of the things that I would go back and tell myself now, if I could, is that you had just as much right to be on that beach as any other person on the planet. Just because I was fat, just because I was overweight did not mean that I did not deserve to be out there among the living. That was a cruel lie that I believed and I believe that my disease kept me retelling myself so that I could comfort myself with the only substance, you know, that seemed to do the trick just fine, you know, which was the food. Um, you know, and so it says here that page 24, the fact is that most alcoholics for reasons yet obscure have lost the power of choice in drinking. Our so-called willpower becomes practically non-existent. We're unable at certain times to bring into consciousness with sufficient force the memory of the suffering and humiliation of even a week or a month ago. We're without defense against the first drink. So I would say this, I have, I have willpower, but it disappears without any warning signs. It's just gone. All of a sudden, that willpower that I had to use against the fighting the food is nowhere to be gone, you know, nowhere to be found. It's, um, and, you know, the, the, I'm without defense. I can't bring into consciousness with enough force. And so, you know, some, I've heard people say like, if, you know, just remember, if I could just remember and, and I'm going to, I'm going to remember, you know, my last binge. I'm just going to remember how much pain I was in. I have to tell you, I talk about my last binge and I talk about the suffering. I can't use that even today. That is not sufficient force because I tell it and I don't feel it the way that I did back then. You know, it softens over time. I think it's almost like anybody who's given birth, who's had a baby. You know, I don't know, a few months later, you don't remember how bad it hurt. You just don't. And I think it's the same with these binges. So today, my my defense does not come from my memory because that would mean I have a mental defense. And even recovered, we don't have a mental defense. We have a spiritual defense. So today, the only thing that keeps me from returning to the eating, not my memory, it's my relationship with God. It is living in a position where I am safe and protected. And the way that I remain safe and protected is through my spiritual well-being, which we found out in the very beginning 
is getting in the water and helping with the rescuing of still others. So if I stop doing this work, if I stop sharing the message, if I stop sponsoring people, if I stop answering the phone, well, I don't care how bad my last binge was. It's pointless. It will not keep me safe and protected. And I've got great memory. I really do. I've got a pre for certain things. I shouldn't say I have a great memory. It's like getting a little weird now. Certain things I can't remember the same anymore. But I have a pretty good memory for certain things. And I've been able to use consequences and willpower to keep me safe in many other areas. You know, um, but consequences don't work for this. That's not part of my solution either. You know, because um Rewards and consequences, they're generally very effective at coming to manage behaviors, but they're reliant on a mental defense. They're reliant on memory so that you somehow make the connection between the reward and the consequence to the thing that you're avoiding doing. And that doesn't work for this. It doesn't work for this. Um, you know, when I was um, when I was in college, here's, here's an example of where memory and pain and humiliation and consequences work. When I was a freshman in college, many, many years ago, um, I had a really great time my first semester freshman year. And I partied, I went out every night, I drank too much. I did all sorts of like crazy things at 18 years old. Um, and I failed out of school my first semester. And I had to come home. My parents were like, they were really angry at me, you know, no doubt. They gave me some consequences. Like I had to, you know, I had to pay for basically what I had done. Um, and what? And, um, and I was able, because I am not, uh, thank God, a party, you know, that that was not where I'm an addict in that area, I was actually able to learn from the from those consequences. And I got myself together and I'd never repeated that again. I learned how to do things in balance and in stride. That, would nev that never worked with food. Consequences, embarrassment, pain, humiliation, never worked with this. This, you know, um, I could not remember the pain and humiliation about what the food did to me with sufficient force. Um, you know, and so it says here that when this sort of thinking is established in an individual with alcoholic tendencies, if you're a real compulsive overeater, you've probably placed yourself beyond human aid. And unless locked up, may die or go permanently insane, but for the grace of God, there would have been thousands more convincing demonstrations. So, you know, so what is it that's our solution? The grace of God. And what does it mean? What does grace mean? You know, it comes from the word graciousness, you know, and, and it means its root is to be, is to show favor, to show consideration and favor. And so our solution is that God is gracious, that we have a God that wants to be favorably inclined to us, that is favorably inclined to us. He wants what's best for us. My entire recovery 
is going to be reliant on the consideration and favor of my creator. You know, which for me is a step one. Step one means that I am here because I must have a miracle. That's my solution, which means I must have God's grace. That's what a miracle means. God's favor. And it's unmerited, unearned. And here's the other thing, always available. Like that's just beautiful. That it really is available to anybody. Um, it's only though, so so then you might say, like, well, then if it's always available, why is it that before you came to take these 12 steps, why couldn't you access this grace? I don't know. I don't know the answer to that. But I can tell you that once I did, once I surrendered and I took these steps as prescribed completely. I was, you know, I was placed in a position where I was able to access this grace. And that for me has been the solution, you know, and here's the thing, right? Nobody likes the solution. Remember, we're not enthusiastic about the treatment. No one likes self-searching, leveling of pride. Who wants to confess their shortcomings? I don't, right? And, but that's the process that's required in order for this to happen, you know, and it says for successful consummation, you know, and, and consummation means complete, finalized, like in a marriage, right? So it's almost like we get, we get like married to this solution, to this thing for us. Um, and why do we do it? Because we see that it works in others. You know, we came to believe in the hopelessness and futility as life that we had been living it. So it's important that you really have a full step one experience, which means that this is futile and hopeless. And it, you know, my life feels hopeless. Um, and so what's happened is that we found much of heaven and have been rocketed into the fourth dimension of existence of which we have not even dreamed. You know, I have to say, I did not dream about living in the fourth dimension. My early dreams were so small. All I dreamed about way back then was being able to stop eating so that I could fit into smaller size clothes. That's where I was, you know? My dreams were so small. Fourth dimension living was way, it was so big. I didn't even know that that's what, that I could dream for something like that. And so here it is, here's our solution. The great fact is just this and nothing less. We have had deep and effective spiritual experiences, which have revolutionized our whole attitude toward life, towards our fellows, and towards God's universe. And this is my, this is one of my favorite lines. The central fact of our lives today is the absolute certainty that our creator has entered our hearts and lives in a way which is indeed miraculous. So what's my solution is that God has entered my heart. He has somehow pierced this heart, came into my heart and rearranged everything inside me so that he has done things for me which I could never do by myself. And it's not just something that I kind of think might be true, 
It's actually the central fact of my life. So I think that, you know, it's important to say here that my solution is that I can feel God inside me. That I have a relationship with a living and loving creator that is gracious and powerful, that loves me and has power. And, you know, one of my favorite names for God is found in We Agnostics. It's on page 56. It says, the presence of infinite power and love. And so when I asked, what is the solution? For me, that's what I can point to. I can say a process that when complete, allows me to have a relationship with the power that's power and love. And what that relationship with power and love does is it makes eating my alcoholic foods or eating compulsively seem entirely uninteresting. That's what happens. Is that so that I'm not relying on willpower anymore? And here's the thing, right? If you're seriously alcoholic as we were, we believe there is no middle of the road solution. That's why people say entirely willing. Are you willing? Because there's nothing in the middle. No middle of the road solution. We're in a position where life is becoming impossible. This to me is the step one question you ask yourself. Is my life impossible? Have I passed into the region from which there's no return through human aid? Have I tried every human solution over and over and over again? Am I so miserable I can't stand it anymore? And if that's my, if that's where I'm at, I got two choices. One, go to the bitter end, go back to the food. For me, it was go ahead and eat and blotting out the consciousness of my intolerable situation. So it means for me, go back and eat and eat myself so that I don't even realize how miserable I am. Just eat myself to a coma, right? Walk around drunk and numb, live my life that way. And the other one is to accept spiritual help, you know? And, and so what I would say, that for me is a pivotal paragraph. And here's what it is. I'm going to end right, right after this. I'm going much longer than I wanted to. When you're at that point, door one, door two, right? I thought for a long time I could hang out in the hallway between those two doors, right? I'm going to stay in the hallway. Here's the food and here's the solution. And one of the most beautiful things that happened for me is that the hallway dropped out from underneath me. There was no hallway left. I had two choices, right? Choice food, choice solution. And if you want to have a deep and effective spiritual experience, which is the only thing that can solve this problem, it is available to anybody. And with that, I'll pass.